The reading for this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, and we'll be looking at Luke chapter 23, specifically the verses 13 to 49. Luke 23, the verses 13 to 49. And you can find that on page 1216 of your pew Bible. So we have seen that Jesus has been arrested and that he has been brought before Pilate and before Herod. And now in verse 13, we read, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast." And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him. And women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now the verses I want to focus on for the sermon this morning are the verses 39 to 43 with the two criminals that were hanged beside him. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not too long ago, in Vietnam, two Christian pastors were abducted from an airport, stripped of their clothes, robbed and beaten with a metal rod. The perpetrators seemed to have been those who attacked them for their faith. In Pakistan, a woman named Asia, who was jailed in 2009 on alleged charges of blasphemy against Muhammad, is currently appealing her death sentence in the Supreme Court. During the last eight years in prison, she's held fast to her witness for Christ. In Malaysia, the Christian community has been rocked. According to a Voice of the Martyrs report on March 9, three members of the Christian community have been kidnapped. The wife of one of the abductees says, my children and I are very anxious, but I am very thankful and overwhelmed by the love and generosity of God's people. So many messages of support and encouragement have come in. God is good. He is faithful. How is it possible that such people who should be so afraid are holding firm? How is it that their faith hasn't crumbled? How is it that in the face of such danger, despite their fear, they are able to say, God is good? 
Could it be because they have learned of the reality of the mercy and grace of a Savior who has died for them? Beloved congregation, I bring you the word of God as summarized under the following theme. Our Savior brings a criminal into paradise. And we'll see, first of all, two men with a common condition, and secondly, one sinner redeemed and forgiven. Beloved congregation, this morning, we are brought to the foot of the cross at Golgotha. With the reading of Luke 23, we have seen as each step of our Lord brings him closer and closer to his final act. We have read about how he was mocked, falsely accused, and abused, and tortured. He was given a crown, not to bring honor, but to bring pain. He was given a scarlet robe, not out of respect, but out of scorn. He was brought to trial without a conviction. And finally, he was crucified, humiliated, with a criminal on his right and another one on his left. And he was crucified with a sign over his head proclaiming him to be the king of the Jews. Three men hanging side by side. Three men suffering the same fate. Three men condemned to die a humiliating and painful death. What was the nature of such a death? What did these three men face? In order to understand this, let's take a step back and look at it from the perspective of what Jesus himself draws our attention to as he's on the cross. He leads us to see the depth of his agony by the words of prophecy uttered just over a thousand years prior to that. Let's turn together to Psalm 22. And this psalm is a psalm prophesying about the suffering and the death of the Messiah. We read in the other Gospels how Christ himself quotes the opening words of this psalm while he's on the cross. As he's hanging there, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want to focus in a few verses in particular. Let's begin at verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. When you were crucified, it was a slow ordeal. The beating prior to the crucifixion and the loss of blood that accompanied it would have left you exhausted, dehydrated. You'd be tormented by thirst. We uh, read following, you have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Dogs was another term for Gentiles. The Romans would have stood guard around those who were crucified, making sure that no one would try to rescue them. The congregation or assembly of the wicked would have been a reference to the Jews who would have joined in with the Romans, scoffing and mocking at Jesus. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. 
crucifixion, as we mentioned before, was a slow ordeal. This is something, it's quite amazing actually that this is something that the psalmist describes in such detail because they had nothing comparable to this back in the day. They had nothing comparable to hanging on a cross. Now, crucifixion was a slow ordeal, and hammering nails through your hands and feet, though extremely painful, doesn't kill you. The Romans were professionals, and they wanted to stretch this out as long as possible in order to make a statement. It was a political statement that had as big an impact as possible. And so, when they crucified you, they crucified you with bent knees. And the idea behind this was that you wouldn't die too quickly because your arms, when they were above you, they left your ribs contracted, so you're sucked in like this. And then you would start to suffocate. And the idea was that everybody would be able to see you. They'd be able to count all your bones as your skin is stretched tight against you. And then, as you started to suffocate, you'd have to push yourself back up to breathe, braced on the nails that were hammered through your feet. So as he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. And this pattern would continue, usually between two and seven days. The next verse says, they look at me and stare at me They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Now we know from John 19, verse 24, that they divided Christ's garments when they crucified him. But when they came to his tunic, they thought that it would be a waste to tear it, because it was one piece. And so with Christ hanging above them, they played dice for his tunic, casting lots in order to see who would win the prize. This was already prophesied. This was what Christ drew their attention to so many years after this psalm was written. This was the nature of the suffering that Christ, our Lord, faced. But what about the men beside him? What about their suffering? Both of these men would have faced a very similar ordeal. They, too, had a very long ways to go before they would die. The main difference here was the fact that Christ rightfully did not belong here. They, on the other hand, were exactly where they deserved to be. They were hanging there facing the penalty for what they had done. We don't know the exact nature of their crimes. We know from the other Gospels that they were considered robbers by the Romans. They would have, this would have involved assault and attempted murder or perhaps even murder. Think of the men who attacked the traveler in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They left him stripped, they left him beaten and lying in the dust on, the door, on death's door. They didn't intend for him to survive. So at the very least, these men who are hanging on Jesus' right and on his left were violent criminals. Each of the men beside him had their crucifixion coming. And they recognized that. The one says to the other, we receive the due reward for our deeds. The other says nothing to contradict him. 
These men, one on Christ's right and the other on his left, were equally deserving of shame. They were under the very same condemnation. And by all rights, because of their sin, their death would would swiftly be followed by a one-way ticket to hell. And yet, yet, God was at work, even here. This brings us to our second point. As these two men hang there, one on Christ's right and one on his left, they too hear the scoffing and mocking that's directed his way. And in their last hours, we see these two men offered the very same opportunity to join in. They are offered the very same opportunity. The opportunity to spend their dying hours in the presence of the Savior of the world. The question is, what will they do with this, these last hours that they spend in the presence of the Savior? Now, when statisticians try to map behavior, they try to predict how people react in a particular situation. They'll try to take groups of people who are quite similar to each other. Because of their backgrounds, the same factors that influence them and the shared values that they have, this often puts them in the situation that they're in. And so they'll often make the same choices. So that's exactly what you expect in this particular situation. You have two criminals. Both of them are robbers, they're violent men. Both of them share a similar history and they're being crucified on the same day. So you would expect them to react in the same way to being crucified together with Christ. But one thing that statisticians don't take into account and cannot take into account is the grace of God. And that's what we see at work here. The first man to open his mouth He speaks in the way that you would expect of someone who is in this situation, who's arrived here in the way that he has. He knows of Jesus. In fact, it's pretty impossible by this point in time not to have heard of him. Jesus, after his resurrection, he was walking along the road to Emmaus and he was speaking with the men there. And they say to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened here in these days? Everyone at this time knows about who Jesus is and what is going on. This man is no different. He knows of Christ, his preaching, and his claims. And so he opens his mouth, blaspheming him, and saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Consider that, brothers and sisters. Despite his issues, despite everything that placed him there, he has the gall to mock Christ. And more than that, he has the nerve to suggest that he is worthy of being saved. That the first thing that Christ would do after saving himself would be to turn around and let a criminal off scot-free. He suggests that despite everything Christ has preached, warning people to repent, he comes to let them off the hook. Oh, what a sad, sad position this is. This man is a breath away from eternity. A breath away from facing the wrath of God. And all he can do is mock. All he can do is cry out with 
blasphemy on his lips. He's unrepentant to the final hour. It might be easy to stand in judgment over him. But before you do that, brothers and sisters, examine your own lives. Are you living in unrepentant sin right now? Are you in the position of this man? Is there something in your life that you are holding on to and you think, I can repent later? Brother, sister, pray that God doesn't allow you to remain so hard-hearted. Pray that God would bring true repentance into your heart or you may well end up like this man. If you can't bring yourself to come before God in repentance now, how do you think it'll be any different on your deathbed? Minutes away from eternity, two possible fates lie before this man. And all he can do is bring himself to mock God. Pray that God would have mercy on you and that he would not allow this to be your fate. Repent from your sin now, in this moment. Pledge to God right now that you'll seek to flee from it because you don't know the day or the hour that you will be facing eternity. In fact, it's only by the grace of God that you haven't perished in your sin already. Don't presume on his grace. Don't presume on his patience. Two outcomes, two eternities are staring you in the face right now. Repent and turn to him. We know from the parallel accounts of Matthew and Mark that the other criminal who was on the cross joined in with the mocking for a short period of time. But he doesn't continue in sin. The Holy Spirit moves within him and he's cut to the heart. And he makes a remarkable statement. Do you not even fear God seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. It's not the blaspheming of Jesus that gives him reason to rebuke, but it's the realization of what is ahead. In their acceptance of their fate and their decision to make the most of the time they have, both of these men have chosen to enjoy the few hours that they have left by taking the bitter pleasure of mocking someone who is in a slightly worse situation than they are in. They've chosen to kick someone who's down in order to make themselves feel better. But this man has brought, been brought to the sudden realization of how short-sighted that is. He lost sight of eternity that lies on his doorstep. And suddenly, it's come to fill his view. Fear fills him, and he's brought back to the words of Jesus. 
by his response, we can see that this man has heard something of Christ's sermons before. He has understood the fact that Christ isn't the king of an earthly kingdom, but that he has a kingdom not of this world. And the Holy Spirit opened the realization in his heart before even a single one of the disciples understood. Before even a single one of the disciples understood, the Holy Spirit opened the realization in this man's heart that Christ was about to enter into his kingdom. The truth of what Christ had to spend time explaining to his disciples after his resurrection, the reality of his fulfillment of prophecy and of his position in heaven, and the fact that he is the only hope for those who desire to stand before God, has suddenly filled the heart of this criminal. It's breathtaking. He may not understand the fullness of what Christ's sacrifice means, but he has, in some small way, been allowed to understand the significance of Christ's position before the Father. And so he says the words, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Note the difference between these two men. One said, save yourself and us. He suggests that it's Christ's job to let people off the hook. But the other recognized the reality of his situation. He recognized that he deserved nothing. And he begged Christ to remember him when he came into his kingdom. Not on the basis of his own merits. Not on the basis of his own merits. Because he's hanging on the cross. He says, we deserve to be here. Not on the basis of his own merits but on the basis of Christ's mercy. How greatly this episode highlights what Christ came into the world to do. He didn't come into the world to let people off the hook, but to bring them to repentance and faith and to take their sins upon himself. And so, Jesus responds, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let the gravity of that strike you for a moment. Let the weight of those words sink in. Oh, what joy awaits this man. His death has turned from hours of agony and hopelessness into hours of hope. He was standing on the brink of the abyss and Christ swept in and claimed him as his own. And now he's standing at the gates of heaven with his death being nothing more than the moment that ushers him into glory. Nothing, nothing but grace can explain what happened here. Nothing but grace. Brothers and sisters, marvel at this. What an amazing grace that's shown to him. Now, there is much comfort that that can be drawn from this, but I want to point out two things in particular. One is, where there is life, there is hope. Redemption awaits all who come before the Lord in true repentance and faith. The hour for repentance is now. Don't presume on the goodness 
and patience of the Lord. But do trust that when you do repent with sincerity of heart, redemption is there in full. Second, you never know when the Spirit decides to use the gospel that you shared with someone who is near and dear to you. When the Spirit uses that, the gospel that you shared with someone down the road, if you have someone who is near and dear to you, who has wandered from the faith, or if you have a neighbor whom you shared the gospel with and they didn't seem to respond, don't give up on when or how the Spirit will choose to work this in their hearts. Where there is life, there is hope. Remember that and don't get discouraged when someone doesn't seem to hear The Spirit is at work in this world. The Spirit who can do so much more than we can ask or think or imagine. Brothers and sisters, where there is a life, where there is is hope. And for those who believe, this hope continues even beyond the grave. A hope for the Christian that in the day that he dies, he'll hear Christ's voice. Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the hope that inspires such zeal in the hearts of those who are persecuted around the globe. This is what allows Christians in Vietnam, Pakistan, Malaysia, and so many other countries to hold tightly to their faith. They know what lies in store for them because they know and believe in the Savior who has opened the way for them. That no matter what their past, He will Usher them into glory if they turn to him in repentance and faith. In the words of William Cowper, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. So today, as we commemorate the death of our dear Lord, let each of us now turn to this precious Savior who has offered up so much for those who believe. Let's cling to our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and who died, buying those who believe with his precious blood so that even the worst of sinners can be redeemed and forgiven. Amen.